0: Chapter Twenty Five of *The Masquerader* by Catherine Cecil Thurston. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter Twenty Five. Having taken a definite step in any direction, it was not in Loder's nature to wish it retraced. His face was set, but set with determination, when he closed the outer door of his own rooms and passed quietly down the stairs and out into the silent court. The thought of Chilcot his pitiable condition, his sordid environments, were things that required a firm will to drive into the background of the imagination. But a whole inferno of such visions would not have daunted Loder on that morning, as, unobserved by any eyes, he left the little courtyard, with its grass, its trees, its pavement, all so distastefully familiar, and passed down the strand towards life and action. As he walked his steps increased in speed and vigour, Now, for the first time, he fully appreciated the great mental strain that he had undergone in the past ten days, the unnatural tension, the suppressed but perpetual sense of impending recall, the consequently high pressure at which work and even existence had been carried on. And as he hurried forward, the natural reaction to this state of things came upon him in a flood of security and confidence, a strong realization of the temporary respite and freedom for which no price would have seemed too high the moment for which he had unconsciously lived ever since Chilcott's first memorable proposition was within reach at last, safeguarded by his own action. The walk from Clifford's Inn to Grosvenor Square was long enough to dispel any excitement that his interview had aroused, and long before the well-known house came into view he felt sufficiently braced mentally and physically to seek Eve in the morning-room, where he instinctively felt she would still be waiting for him. Thus he encountered and overpassed the obstacle that so nearly threatened ruin, and with the singleness of purpose that always distinguished him, he was able, once having passed it, to dismiss it altogether from his mind. From the moment of his return to Chilcot's house, no misgiving as to his own action, no shadow of doubt, rose to trouble his mind. His feelings on the matter were quite simple. He had inordinately desired a certain opportunity, one factor had arisen to debar that opportunity, and he, claiming the right of strength, had set the barrier aside. In the simplicity of the reasoning lay its power to convince, and where a tonic needed to brace him for his task, he was provided with one in the masterful sense of a difficulty set at naught. For the man who has fought and conquered, one obstacle feels strong to vanquish a score. It was on this day, at the reassembling of Parliament, the frayed great blow was to be struck. In the ten days since the affair of the caravans had been reported from Persia, public feeling had run high, and it was upon the pivot of this instant that Loder's attack was to turn, for, as lately was fond of remarking, in the scales of public opinion one dead Englishman has more weight than the whole eastern question. It had been arranged that, following the customary procedure, Loder was to rise after questions at the morning sitting, and ask Leave to move the adjournment of the house on a definite matter of urgent public importance, upon which, Leave having been granted by the rising of forty members in his support, the way was to lie open for his definite attack at the evening sitting, and it was with a mind attuned to this plan of action that he retired to the study immediately he had breakfasted, and settled to a final revision of his speech before an early party conference should compel him to leave the house. But here again, circumstances were destined to change his programme. Scarcely had he sorted his notes and drawn his chair to Chilcot's desk, than Renwick entered the room with the same air of important haste that he had shown on a previous occasion. A letter from Mr. Fraid, sir. But there's no answer, he said, with unusual brevity. Loder waited until he had left the room, then he tore the letter open. He read, my dear chilcots lately is a recipient of special and very vital news from meshed unofficial but none the less alarming acts of russian aggression towards british traders are reported to be rapidly increasing and it is stated that the authority of the consulate is treated with contempt pending a possible confirmation of this i would suggest that you keep an open mind on the subject of tonight's speech by adopting an anticipatory even unprepared attitude you may find your hand materially strengthened i shall put my opinions before you more explicitly when we meet yours faithfully herbert frade the letter worded with frade's usual restraint made a strong impression on its recipient the thought that his speech might not only express opinions already tacitly held but voice a situation of intense and national importance struck him with full force for many minutes after he had grasped the meaning of frade's message he sat neglectful of his notes his elbows resting on the desk his face between his hands, stirred by the suggestion that here might lie a greater opportunity than any he had anticipated. Still moved by this new suggestion, he attended the party conclave that Frey had convened, and afterwards lunched with and accompanied his leader to the house. They spoke very little as they drove to Westminster, for each was engrossed by his own thoughts. Only once did Frey allude to the incident that was paramount in both their minds. Then. Turning to Loder with a smile of encouragement, he laid his fingers for an instant on his arm. Chilcot, he said, when the time comes, remember you have all my confidence. Looking back upon that day, Loder often wondered at the calmness with which he bore the uncertainty. To sit apparently unmoved and wait without emotion for news that might change the whole tenor of one's action would have tried the stoicism of the most experienced. To the novice, it was well-nigh unendurable. And it was under these conditions, and fighting against these odds, that he sat through the long afternoon in Chilcote's place, obeying the dictates of his chief. But if the day was fraught with difficulties for him, it was fraught with dullness and disappointment for others. For the undercurrent of interest that had stirred at the Easter adjournment, and risen with added force on this first day of the new session, was gradually but surely threatened with extinction, as hour after hour passed, bringing no suggestion of the battle that had on every side been tacitly expected. Slowly and unmistakably speculation and dissatisfaction crept into the atmosphere of the house, as moment succeeded moment, and the opposition made no sign. Was Freyde shirking the attack, or was he playing a waiting game? Again and again the question arose, filling the air with a passing flicker of interest, but each time it sprang up only to die down again, as the ordinary business of the day dragged itself out. Gradually, as the afternoon wore on, daylight began to fade. Loder, sitting rigidly in Chilcote's place, watched with suppressed inquiry the faces of the men who entered through the constantly swinging doors. But not one face, so eagerly scanned, carried the message for which he waited. Monotonously and mechanically the time passed. The government, adopting a neutral attitude, carefully skirted all dangerous subjects, while the opposition, acting under Freyde's suggestion, assisted rather than hindered the programme of postponement. For the moment the eagerly anticipated reassembling threatened dismal failure, and it was with a universal movement of weariness and relief that at last the house rose to dine. But there are no possibilities so elastic as those of politics, at half-past seven the house rose in a spirit of boredom and disappointment, and at eight o'clock the lobbies, the dining-room, the entire space of the vast building, were stirred into activity by the arrival of a single telegraphic message. The new development for which Freight had waited came indeed, but it came with a force he had little anticipated. With a thrill of awe and consternation men heard and repeated the astounding news that, while personally exercising his authority on behalf of British traders, Sir William Bryce Field, Consul General at Meshed, had been fired at by a Russian officer and instantly killed. The interval immediately following the receipt of this news was too confused for detailed remembrance. Two ideas made themselves slowly felt a deep horror that such an event could obtrude itself upon our high civilization, and a strong personal dismay that so honoured, distinguished, and esteemed a representative as Sir William Bryce Field could have been allowed to meet death in so terrible a manner. It was in the consciousness of this feeling, the consciousness that, in his own person, he might voice not only the feelings of his party, but those of the whole country, that Loder rose an hour later, to make his long-delayed attack. He stood silent for a moment, as he had to turn on an earlier occasion— but this time his motive was different. Roused beyond any feeling of self-consciousness, he waited, as by right, for the full attention of the house. Then quietly, but with self-possessed firmness, he moved the motion for adjournment. Like a match to a train of powder, the words set flame to the excitement that had smouldered for weeks, and in an atmosphere of stirring activity a scene of such tense and vital concentration as the house has rarely witnessed he found inspiration for his great achievement. To give Loder's speech in mere words would be little short of futile. The gift of oratory is too elusive, too much a matter of eye and voice and individuality to allow of cold reproduction. To those who heard him speak on that night of April the 18th, the speech will require no recalling, and to those who did not hear him, there would be no substitute in bare reproduction. In the moment of action it mattered nothing to him that his previous preparations were to a great extent rendered useless by this news that had come with such paralysing effect. In the sweeping consciousness of his own ability he found added joy in the freedom it opened up. He ceased to consider that by fate he was a conservative bound by traditional conventionalities. In that great moment he knew himself sufficiently a man to exercise whatever individuality instinct prompted. He forgot the didactic methods by which he proposed to show knowledge of his subject, both as a past and a future factor in European politics. With his own strong appreciation of present things, he saw and grasped the vast present interests lying beneath his hand. For fifty minutes he held the interest of the house, speaking insistently, fearlessly, commandingly, on the immediate need of action. He unhesitatingly pointed out that the news which had just reached England was not so much an appalling fact as a sinister warning to those in whose keeping lay the safety of the country's interests. Lastly, with a fine touch of eloquence, he paid tribute to the steadfast fidelity of such men as Sir William Bricefield, who, whatever political complications arise at home, pursue their duty unswervingly on the outposts of the empire. At his last words there was silence, the silence that marks a genuine effect Then, all at once, with vehement, impressive force, the storm of enthusiasm broke its bounds. It was one of those stupendous bursts of feeling that no etiquette, no decorum is powerful enough to quell. As he resumed his seat, very pale, but exalted, as men are exalted only once or twice in a lifetime, it rose about him, clamorous, spontaneous, undeniable. Near at hand were the faces of his party, excited and triumphant. Across the house were the faces of Sephra and his ministry, uncomfortable and disturbed. The tumult swelled, then fell away, and in the partial lull that followed, Freyde leaned over the back of his seat. His quiet, dignified expression was unaltered, but his eyes were intensely bright. "'Chilcott,' he whispered, "'I don't congratulate you or myself. I congratulate the country on possessing a great man.' The remaining features of the debate followed quickly one upon the other. The electric atmosphere of the House possessed a strong incentive power. Immediately low reservation had subsided. The Under-Secretary for Foreign Affairs rose, and in a careful and non-incriminating reply defended the attitude of the Government. Next came Freyde, who in one of his rare and polished speeches touched with much feeling upon his personal grief at the news reported from Persia, and made emphatic endorsement of Loder's words. Following Frey came one or two dissentient liberals, and then Sephra himself closed the debate. His speech was masterly and fluent, but though any disquietude he may have felt was well disguised under a tone of reassuring ease, the attempt to rehabilitate his position, already weakened in more than one direction, was a task beyond his strength. Amid extraordinary excitement the division followed, and with it a government defeat. It was not until half an hour after the votes had been taken that Loder, freed at last from persistent congratulations, found opportunity to look for Eve. In accordance with a promise made that morning, he was to find her waiting outside the ladies' gallery at the close of the debate. Disengaging himself from the group of men who had surrounded and followed him down the lobby, he discarded the lift and ran up the narrow staircase. Reaching the landing, he went forward hurriedly. Then, with a sudden abrupt movement, he paused. In the doorway leading to the gallery, Eve was waiting for him. The place was not brightly lighted, and she was standing in the shadow, but he needed only a glance to assure his recognition. He could almost have seen in the dark that night, so vivid were his perceptions. He took a step towards her. Then again he stopped. In a second glance he realised that her eyes were bright with tears, and it was with the strangest sensation he had ever experienced that the knowledge flashed upon him. Here also he had struck the same note, the long-coveted note of supremacy. It had rung out full and clear as he stood in Chilcote's place dominating the house. It had besieged him clamorously as he passed along the lobbies amid a sea of friendly hands and voices. Now, in the quiet of the deserted gallery, he came home to him with deeper meaning— from the eyes of Chilcote's wife. Without thought, he put out his hands and caught hers. "I couldn't get away," he said. "I'm afraid I'm very late." With a smile that scattered her tears, Eve looked up. "Are you?" she said, laughing a little. "I don't know what the time is. I scarcely know whether it's night or day." Still holding one of her hands, he drew her down the stairs but as they reached the last step she released her fingers. "'In the carriage,' she said, with another little laugh of nervous happiness. At the foot of the stairs they were surrounded. Men, whose faces Loda barely knew, crowded about him. The intoxication of excitement was still in the air, the instinct that a new force had made itself felt, a new epoch had been entered upon, stirred prophetically in every mind. Passing through the enthusiastic concourse of men, they came unexpectedly upon Fraid and Lady Sarah, surrounded by a group of friends. The old statesman came forward instantly, and, taking Loder's arm, walked with him to Chilcot's waiting broom. He said little, as they slowly made their way to the carriage, but the pressure of his fingers was tense, and an unwonted colour showed in his face. When Eve and Loder had taken their seats, he stepped to the edge of the kerb. They were alone for the moment, and, leading close to the carriage he put his hand through the open window. In silence he took Eve's fingers and held them in a long, affectionate pressure. Then he released them and took Loda's hand. "'Good-night, Jilcot,' he said. "'You proved yourself worthy of her. Good-night.' He turned quickly and rejoined his waiting friends. In another second the horses had wheeled round and Eve and Loder were carried swiftly forward into the darkness. IN THE GREAT MOMENTS OF MAN'S LIFE, WOMAN COMES BEFORE, AND AFTER. Some shadow of this truth was in Eve's mind as she lay back in her seat, with closed eyes and parted lips. It seemed that life came to her now for the first time, came in the glad, proud, satisfying tide of things accomplished. This was her hour, and the recognition of it brought the blood to her face in a sudden happy rush. There had been no need to precipitate its coming. It had been ordained from the first. Whether she desired it or not, whether she strove to draw it nearer or strove to ward it off, its coming had been inevitable. She opened her eyes suddenly and looked out into the darkness, the darkness throbbing with multitudes of lives, all awaiting, all desiring fulfilment. She was no longer lonely, no longer aloof. She was kin with all this pitiful, admirable, sinning, loving humanity. Again tears of pride and happiness filled her eyes. Then suddenly the thing she waited for came to pass. Loda leaned close to her. She was conscious of his nearer presence, of his strong, masterful personality. With a thrill that caught her breath she felt his arm about her shoulder and heard the sound of his voice. Eve, he said, I love you do you understand I love you?' And drawing her close to him, he bent and kissed her. With Loder, to do was t- to do fully. When he gave, he gave generously. When he swept aside a barrier, he left no stone standing. He had been slow to recognise his capacities, slower still to recognise his feelings. But now that the knowledge came, he received it openly. In this matter of newly comprehended love he gave no thought to either past or future. That they loved and were alone was all he knew or questioned. She was as much Eve, the one woman, as though they were together in the primeval garden, and in that spirit he claimed her. He neither spoke nor behaved extravagantly in that great moment of comprehension. He acted quietly, with the completeness of purpose that he gave to everything— he had found a new capacity within himself, and he was strong enough to dread no weakness in displaying it. Holding her close to him, he repeated his declaration, again and again, as though repetition ratified it. He found no need to question her feeling for him. He divined it in a flash of inspiration as she stood waiting in the doorway of the gallery. But his own surrender was a different matter. As the carriage passed round the corner of Whitehall and dipped into the traffic of Piccadilly, he bent down again until her soft hair brushed his face, and the warm personal contact, the slight fresh smell of violet, so suggestive of her presence, stirred him afresh. "'Eve,' he said vehemently, "'do you understand? Do you know that I have loved you always, from the very first?' As he said it, he bent still nearer, kissing her lips, her forehead, her hair at the same moment the horse's slackened speed, and then stopped, arrested by one of the temporary blocks that so often occur in the traffic of Piccadilly Circus. Loder, preoccupied with his own feelings, scarcely noticed the halt. But Eve drew away from him, laughing. "'You mustn't,' she said softly. "'Look!' The carriage had stopped beside one of the small islands that intersect the place. A group of pedestrians were crowded upon it under the light of the electric lamp, wayfarers who, like themselves, were awaiting a passage. Loda took a cursory glance at them, then turned back to Eve. "'What are they, after all, but men and women?' he said. "'They'd understand, every one of them.' He laughed in his turn. Nevertheless he withdrew his arm. Her feminine thought for conventionalities appealed to him. It was an acknowledgement of dependency. For a while they sat silent— the light of the street-lamp flickering through the glass of the window, the hum of voices and traffic coming to them in a continuous rise and fall of sound. At first the position was interesting, but as the seconds followed each other, it gradually became irksome. Loda, watching the varying expressions of E.'s face, grew impatient of the delay, grew suddenly eager to be alone again in the fragrant darkness. Impelled by the desire, he leaned forward and opened the window— Let's find the meaning of this, he said. Is there nobody to regulate the traffic? As he spoke, he half-rose and leaned out of the window. There was a touch of imperious annoyance in his manner. Fresh from the realisation of power, there was something irksome in this commonplace cheque to his desires. Isn't it possible to get out of this? Eve heard him call to the coachman. Then she heard no more. He leaned out of the carriage with the intention of looking onward towards the cause of the delay. Instead, by that magnetic attraction that undoubtedly exists, he looked directly in front of him at the group of people waiting on the little island, at one man who leaned against a lamppost in an attitude of apathy, a man with a pallid, unshaven face and lustreless eyes, who wore a cap drawn low over his forehead. He looked at this man, "'and the man saw and returned his glance. "'For a space that seemed interminable "'they held each other's eyes. "'Then very slowly Loder drew back into the carriage. "'As he dropped into his seat, "'Eve glanced at him anxiously. "'John,' she said, "'has anything happened? "'You look ill.' "'He turned to her and tried to smile. "'It's nothing,' he said. "'Nothing to worry about.' "'He spoke quickly, "'but his voice had suddenly become flat.' All the command, all the domination, had dropped away from it. Eve bent close to him, her face lighting up with anxious tenderness. It was the excitement, she said, the strain of to-night. He looked at her, but he had made no attempt to press the fingers that clasped his own. E- yes, he said slowly. Yes, it was the excitement of to-night, um, and the reaction. End of Chapter twenty-five.